Listen, there's a great work to be done. As soon as you win this court battle, you must deliver this message. Take advantage of this opportunity and declare a powerful message to this world. He expects more of us. He believes we can do more. Who's going to stop Christ? Who's going to stop Christ from getting this work done? This is Behind the Work. Welcome to Behind the Work. I'm Grant Turgeon. By the time this show plays on the radio for the first time, it will be the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Brethren in the Philadelphia Church of God all around the world are keeping this seven-day joyous festival at sites all over the place, all over the United States, all over the world. It is really the happiest time of the year for church members And here's a command regarding the Feast of Tabernacles in Deuteronomy 16, verse 15. Seven days shall you keep a solemn feast unto the Eternal your God in the place which the Eternal shall choose, because the Eternal your God shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hands. Therefore, you shall surely rejoice." God commands rejoicing at the Feast of Tabernacles. But notice here a couple chapters earlier, another command that God makes about the feast. Deuteronomy 14, verse 23. And you shall eat before the eternal your God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of your corn, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks, that you may learn to fear the eternal your God always. Now, there is an important detail here about the tithe, saving up a tenth of all your income for an entire year just to spend it on rejoicing at the feast. But the main point I want to make here from Deuteronomy 14, verse 23, is that God commands us to learn how to fear him at the feast. So you have Deuteronomy 16, verse 15, commanding us to rejoice at the feast. And then Deuteronomy 14, verse 23, commanding us to fear God at the feast. At first glance, maybe those two things would seem contradictory. How can you rejoice and fear at the same time? Well, there is a long history of keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. God's work talks a lot about this. And our predecessor, the late Herbert W. Armstrong, set a sterling example of keeping the feast. He and his wife Loma actually actually kept the feast by themselves for seven years. Then, when they started finally keeping the feast with other people, they kept the feast for 12 more years, along with all the other annual observances, without knowing what these days mean. Imagine that. 19 years total, keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and not understanding what it's all about. It seems like Mr. Armstrong would have to have a proper fear of God to do this, to actually obey a command from God without understanding why. 
without grasping the meaning and the symbolism and the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles, he still did it. He feared God. He saw a command from God in the Bible about keeping the feast and how this feast is in existence forever. It is a feast that has been kept for thousands of years down through the ages by everyone who is trying to follow God. Even Christ himself observed the feast. All the apostles after him observed the feast. And God's church, as long as it has been obedient, has kept the Feast of Tabernacles. But Mr. Armstrong didn't even know why to keep it. He just knew that he should. For 19 years, he kept the feast without knowing why. Finally, in 1945, Mr. Armstrong understood. After 19 years of obedience of fearing God enough to keep the feast the way God commands, Mr. Armstrong knew what it meant. He realized that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the millennium, the 1,000-year rule of Jesus Christ on earth. There is really just an incredible article from PCG Pastor General Gerald Flurry on the PCG.Church website titled, God's Feast of Tabernacles in History. This is the history of God's work, the history of God's church, the history of even before God's church, people keeping the feast. He recounts some of this history here, how only 19 people kept the Feast of Tabernacles in 1934, 17 years later, in 1951, only 150 kept the feast. 1953, there were 750 members, 4,500 five years later in 1958. So you're finally starting to see some growth here. 7,500 the next year, and then 10,000 in 1961. Attendance jumped to 70,000 in 1970, and then it topped 100,000 by 1983. So it went from 19 people in 1934 to over 100,000 in 1983. And really, you could say so much of this growth was a result of Mr. Armstrong teaching the vision of the Feast of Tabernacles. Could you imagine over 100,000 people keeping this feast for 19 years straight without knowing why? Truly, that is a rare characteristic that Mr. Armstrong possessed. Fearing God enough to obey without understanding why. He obeyed that command In Deuteronomy 14, verse 23, during the Feast of Tabernacles, he learned to fear God always, even if he didn't know the vision behind the feast itself. But Mr. Flurry points out that really as incredible as this history of Mr. Armstrong is, the history of the feast goes back way further than that. It doesn't just go back into the 1900s. It goes back millennia. 
It goes back to the very first book of the Bible, in fact. Notice Genesis 1, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Mr. Fleury explains how the word seasons can be translated a festival time. So the lights in the sky, the day and the night can be used to measure the seasons or the annual festivals that God commands us to keep before God ever created human beings. He was already thinking about the feast of tabernacles. He was already planning these seven annual observances that God's people keep every single year and how we would be able to measure and mark these dates on our calendars. He already had in mind the symbolism that these festivals would give us. He was thinking about the feast before he created us. God really does see the big picture and he plans so far in advance. Mr. Flurry writes here, imagine the origin of the Feast of Tabernacles before Adam and Eve or any human being ever breathed or laughed or cried. God already had the feast plan. It was very much alive in his mind. Mr. Armstrong was developing the mind of God by rejoicing at the feast. He was fearing God at the feast, and that caused him to rejoice. He was keeping both of those feast commands in Deuteronomy because fearing and rejoicing are connected. He feared God and kept the feast for 19 years without knowing why, and eventually God showed him the vision behind it. God gave him real joy and fulfillment at the feast. He showed Mr. Armstrong a vision of the wonderful world tomorrow. When Jesus Christ will rule over the earth for 1000 years, where finally we will experience world peace. That is a vision that causes us to rejoice. But Mr. Armstrong had to fear God first. He had to obey God and keep the feast first so that God would eventually give him that understanding. That understanding caused him to rejoice. And as a result, Mr. Armstrong taught that vision to millions more people. And hundreds of thousands of them ended up keeping the feast themselves and filling their minds with that vision and rejoicing because of it. It was a virtuous cycle, all started by God working through Mr. Armstrong. Now, Mr. Flurry continues analyzing Genesis here in this article, God's Feast of Tabernacles in History. He quotes Genesis 1, verse 26, which talks about humans being made in the image and likeness of God. Image there refers to character. Likeness is about the form and shape. So we are made with the potential to develop God's character, 
and we look like God. Mr. Flurry points out how image is mentioned before likeness. So the character is mentioned before the physical features. That is most important to God, that we develop his character. Sure, we look like him physically, but the most important thing is developing his character. Mr. Flurry wrote, that creation is of no real value if we don't build godly character and enter into God's family. Looking like God is nice, but eventually to live forever, we also have to choose to let God build his character in us. That is a big reason for the Feast of Tabernacles. Mr. Flurry writes, We go to the feast to work on God's spiritual creation, becoming members of his family. That's the vision of it. The Feast of Tabernacles vision includes all mankind, everyone on earth still alive during the time of the wonderful world tomorrow, will keep the feast every single year. Numerous prophecies in your Bible talk about people going up to Jerusalem to keep the feast in the world tomorrow. This festival will be observed forever, and it is a vision that includes everybody. Mr. Flurry writes here, God wants us to include the whole world in our thinking. Our job is to help Jesus Christ give the feast to the world. You could say that's a major part of God's work today. Giving people this kind of vision. Helping them understand how God's plan really does include everyone. No matter the mistakes you have made. No matter the many failures you may have experienced in life. God has a place for you. He has a place for all of us. The Feast of Tabernacles is full of that kind of vision. God wants everyone to have a chance to enter his family. He wants everyone to experience world peace, true, fulfilling happiness and contentment. And that's what we picture at the Feast of Tabernacles. People from all races, nations, and backgrounds coming together in Jerusalem to keep the feast, to fear God and rejoice. Sadly, the history of the Feast of Tabernacles is filled with maybe some black memories simply because so many people failed to observe this incredible festival. Mr. Flurry talks about how Moses and Joshua led the Israelites to prosper. It was one man rule first through Moses, then through Joshua after Moses was gone. And they of course, taught and enforced God's law. They taught and enforced God's statutes and judgments. 
So first, it's the Ten Commandments. That's the foundation. That tells us how to live our lives. And then there's these statutes, which include keeping the holy days. You know, that builds on the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath day holy. The holy days are also Sabbaths. They're not weekly Sabbaths. They're annual Sabbaths. And we start out by keeping the Ten Commandments, including the weekly Sabbath, before continuing that obedience to God by observing the holy days as well. Moses and Joshua upheld God's law and God's standard. They taught people how to fear God and rejoice at the Feast of Tabernacles, for example. But after Moses and Joshua, it really started to go downhill. Within just one generation after Moses and Joshua, the Israelites were really immersing themselves in pagan customs. They were worshiping false gods. You can see this in the the book of Judges, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. It says the next generation after Moses and Joshua knew not the eternal. They didn't know God. They did evil in God's sight. They worshiped idols, false gods. They were acting just like everyone around them, even though they knew better, even though they knew about God's law and God's holy days. It says they forsook the eternal and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Now, if you look into the history of these pagan gods, you will see how absolutely abominable this false form of worship was. You can find quite a few articles at our website, armstronginstitute.org, about some of these pagan cultures that surrounded the ancient nation of Israel and how they participated in child sacrifice, in really just perverse sexual practices, They were filthy in their religion. And here, even God's own nation is acting just like them. They know better, but they're not acting better. Mr. Fleury points out that the festivals of God were not kept at all during the book of Judges. Not once. And the book of Judges covers hundreds of years of history. Eventually, God's people were taken captive, in part because they stopped keeping God's festivals. They stopped keeping the Sabbath day and the annual Sabbaths, and they also got into idolatry. These were the major sins they committed that led to their enslavement. Israel taken captive by Assyria, the Jews taken captive by Babylon over a hundred years later. This is all taking place in the 700s and the 500s BC. Two separate nations. And the big reason why the nations, the nations split into two in the first place, got back to religious 
observance. With King Jeroboam of Israel trying to lead the people into false religion, into idolatry. And then Judah trying to keep the holy, holy days, but also failing, really. All of this gets back to whether they kept the holy days or not. Israel split and eventually went into captivity because they didn't keep the holy days. At least that was a big reason why. Now, about 900, it really took about 900 years between the death of Joshua to the Jews returning to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity to actually keep the feast the right way again. 900 years of history and God's Feast of Tabernacles was not observed properly. You can see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah how really it only took a couple of strong leaders to get the people back on track. Ezra 7 verse 10 shows how Ezra prepared his heart to seek God's law. Ezra established the law among these Jews who had returned to Jerusalem after being slaves in Babylon. Mr. Fleury writes, so before God can restore the Feast of Tabernacles, he must restore the law. See, we must fear God at the feast. That involves fearing God year round, keeping God's law year round, and then going into the feast with the right momentum. Nehemiah was another strong leader. These men pointed the Jews back to God. They read the law to the people. You can see Nehemiah 8 verse 9. This made the Jews cry. The Jews realized they hadn't been keeping the law. They'd been very far from God. But once they turned back to the law, they had the best feast ever. You can see that in Nehemiah 8 verse 17. They hadn't kept the feast the right way for 900 years. Now, like I said earlier, Jesus Christ kept the feast. By this time, the Jews were making God's festivals a burden. They were keeping these festivals the wrong way. And Christ rebuked these self-righteous Pharisees who thought they were the ones who knew how to keep the feast the best way. They thought their way was better than God's way. Christ really tried to show them where they were going off track, where they were making up too many of their own minute, overburdensome laws about keeping the feast. Christ showed how the people needed to get back to fearing God and rejoicing at the feast.
The Apostle Paul said, I must by all means keep this feast. That's in Acts chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. So you can see how it wasn't just Christ, but even after Christ was gone with the Apostle Paul and those who followed after him, if they were loyal, they were keeping the feast. Mr. Fleury writes, talking about Colossians 2, verse 17, the feast days are all a shadow of things to come. For example, the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the millennium. A tree casts a shadow. The Feast of Tabernacles is like that shadow. If you follow that shadow, it leads you to the millennium. And if you see God or the great light who casts that shadow, then the feast becomes pure joy filled with meaning. So God's people are keeping the Feast of Tabernacles right now. And we are fearing God and rejoicing during this time. And a big part of God's work is to teach about these festivals because this vision does include all mankind. If you want to learn more about the Feast of Tabernacles, about all the other annual observances that God's people keep each year, that really do cause us to be filled with joy, go ahead and request a free copy of Pagan Holidays or God's Holy Days, which you can go to thetrumpet.com and get a copy for free. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Behind the Work. You've been listening to Behind the Work. Email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for a new episode each Monday at 12 p.m. Central Time. Thank you.